I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest in the war in Gaza and how hospitals have become a central part of this war, we have with us my dear friend and great colleague, Dr. Stephen Morrison. Steve is the director of our Global Health Policy Center, a senior vice president at CSIS. Longtime colleague, as I said. Steve, I want to ask you, so why have hospitals become one of the centers of this war between Israel and Hamas? Thanks, Andrew. I mean, this is a tough issue. Hospitals and health infrastructure in general, whether you're talking primary health care or you're talking clinics, you're talking ambulances, you're talking about hospitals, for any society, they're essential to society remaining functional and stable. And so we've seen in war after war after war, these becoming among the most sensitive of what are supposed to be protected sites. And you've pointed this out a lot in your work here at yeah, CSIS. Yeah, under the Geneva Conventions, under Article 19, these are supposed to be protected. And of course, if they are subverted to the military purposes of one or another of the parties to the war, they lose that protection. But if it's restored, then their protections are restored. But they are highly, highly sensitive, right? Because wars hurt people. Wars create a humanitarian crisis by definition. People get hurt by accident. They get hurt, civilians, by deliberate neglect or by deliberate action. They need to be taken care of. And over the history of the evolution of international humanitarian law and the like and the different protocols that have been signed, the protections have gotten more and more specific and more and more universal in the coverage and protection of those institutions. And so when a war breaks out, People are watching very carefully, okay, what happens there? Because it's a signal, it's a signpost of our things deteriorating into a kind of barbarism. And when we did the movie in 2017, the documentary on the new barbarianism, it was a focus upon how in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Yemen, you had different variations of this where the combatants chose to deliberately go after the health systems. Our proposition in making that movie had nothing to do with Israel or Palestinians. But the proposition was when you look at the accounts of the wars of the last 20 or 30 years, you see a pretty significant increase in deliberate targeted attacks against the military, military's infrastructure. And part of the what we tried to answer in that film was why is this happening? Part of it was it's easier to record it in the modern age. You've got more witnesses you got different ways in which you can track this and verify it. You have different institutional actors there, ICRC, MSF, UN agencies that bear witness to this. You also have among those who plan for and carry out wars, particularly those who are cynical, you have the awareness that holding parties to account, whether they're state actors or non-state actors, is really difficult. The enforcement of the Geneva Protocols is very difficult. And so the more cynical in the world, the Putins of the world, or Assad in Syria conclude- Or the Taliban. Or the Taliban, we can destroy as much of our medical infrastructure and kill civilians and not be held to account at all, because who enforces this? But the other thing I wanted to mention here about the place that hospitals occupy and your medical system 
as a whole is if you want to demoralize a population, get a population to separate from their homes and separate from the insurgents or whoever the parties are that they're identified with, one of the most proven techniques in order to affect that is to destroy the health system because it becomes almost impossible to function under those circumstances. And if you take away the related infrastructure that you need, in order to have a functioning society, you have to have power, you have to have fuel, you have to have clean water, you have to have electricity, and you have to have a flow of basic commodities for your health system, medicines, and all the different things that you need, basic things to take care of people. If you want to hurt your enemy in that kind of war, the enemy may be dependent upon the support it receives from its population. So you destroy that, and guess what? You wind up with a million people migrating into Europe out of Syria in 2015. You get almost half of Syria moving out of the major urban centers and up into the north. You had this incredibly fast transformation happen in those wars with vast humanitarian consequences and a destabilizing consequences in other places in the world, right? Those Syrians that migrated in through Turkey and elsewhere into Europe ignited the sort of populist backlash that we've seen in Sweden, in Germany. and The ultra-right in those countries. Yes. And what's been interesting with the Ukraine war is that Putin in his war strategy has followed this because Putin... When he came in to save Assad's ass in 2015, setting up the air operations and, and supporting the ground operations, they went after the health sector in the first instance because that was what saved Assad's ass. And you look at the Ukraine war, something quite similar strategy has been in place, right? A thousand medical facilities damaged or destroyed, the deliberate bombing of the heating and power generating stations and water generating stations in the major urban centers, particularly as you got into winter, along with the attacks upon the health infrastructure. So it's a highly controversial strategy. It's highly cruel and cynical. It's highly effective. It's highly sensitive because it's protected by international humanitarian law, but there's no enforcement. But you have all these actors, and this is the other thing I want to emphasize. You have all these actors like the International Committee of the Red Cross or Doctors Without Borders or UNICEF or WHO's emergency units. Those are the folks that come to the rescue when a war breaks out and a humanitarian crisis arise, which it will arise in some form in every war. They're the institutions that sort of come forward and say, okay, we know how to operate in this environment, but there has to be some ability to protect our own people. We can't lose too many of our own people because WHO will not deploy into a conflict zone unless they know that there's reliable evacuation procedures and on-the-ground communications with folks and the like. Same thing with ICRC, International Community Red Cross, MSF, and others. When things deteriorate like that, if they can't operate, they don't have communications, the internet's down, they can't move safely from point to point, they don't have an ability to talk to the warring parties to keep them informed. We're moving from point A to point B. They don't have the inputs to keep their operations going, then they cannot stabilize a civilian population in crisis safely and effectively. And what they're communicating, just to skip over to the 
to the Israeli case with the experience in the north in particular has been a situation where... The north in Gaza. In Gaza, following the massacre of the 1,200 Israeli citizens and soldiers on October 7th inside Israel and the taking of 240 hostages. The aerial campaign started a day later, two days later. The ground campaign started 20 days later in the north. The aerial campaign extended into the south almost immediately. We're in a situation right now where there's an acute humanitarian crisis in, inside Gaza. At this point, six weeks into the war, you had the immediate siege, immediate blockade on water, fuel, electricity, medicines, and water. That's been eased in some respects, but that has been enforced now for six weeks. And then you had the war begin to unfold. In the case of Gaza and the war in Gaza, the hospital systems are even more sensitive because there's a belief in the part of the Israeli government that they are interconnected with the Hamas command structure, which was the premise when the war plan in the north began to unfold. Al-Shifa became a strategic target in the war plan. And folks were like, wait a second, they're not supposed to be strategic targets. They're supposed to be protected sites. And the assertion was, it's not a legitimate hospital. It's connected to command center and stuff that's subterranean and the like. And that has set off a still unresolved debate around, is that true or not true? It's been very polarizing. The debate around what's going on in that hospital in terms of deprivation, shelling of the hospital. You had at one point in Al-Shifa's ground 60,000 IDPs who had been pushed there as the campaign, as the aerial campaign and the ground campaign. IDPs are? Internally displaced persons who were not there for medical care. They were there seeking emergency shelter, thinking as the aerial campaign and then the ground campaign began, you had this mass movement of people. Whether they were in the north or whether they made it to the south, they tended to cluster in certain places. They went to hospitals where there was big space. Al-Shifa was created by the British It's a massive facility. It's the biggest, most sophisticated hospital in Gaza, but also has lots of space. And so you had 60,000 people at one point crushed in there. But the pattern- That's not the case anymore. They're gone now. There's very few there now. Very few people are in Al-Shifa now. What we've seen here, and this gets back to your question, why are hospitals so sensitive, right? As this war's unfolding and the Israeli government says, we're out to destroy Hamas's military capacities, which are to a very significant degree underground, right? And what does that imply? And their spatial and geographic proximity to hospitals and they're alleging and suspect that there's some deeper connection and other people are saying, well, no, not really. And then you have the campaign that unfold, which is trying to depopulate the North into the South and people are seeking to get out of harm's way in the period of the aerial bombardment, and they move to UNRWA schools, they go to UNRWA primary health care facilities, they go to the hospitals, there's 36 hospitals. So they're going in- 36 hospitals in Gaza. In Gaza. So they're going imperiled and vulnerable people who are in flight cluster around these. So they were important before and sensitive, and then they become even more important because you've got a million people displaced and some of them are in the refugee camps, but the refugee camps get broken up and they're seen as, particularly the one, the two in the North, which still have some population, are seen as bases of very ardent support for Hamas. But you've got these populations moving around and they're tr- trying to find safety 
and hospitals are seen as a place will that may have greater protection and discrimination in the bombing campaign. So you wind up with all these folks there. So they become more and more acute and sensitive and large human crises. But there's also this question of where are the command centers? Where are the underground systems, the metro underground system? Are they getting at those or not? And where are the hostages? So there's this mixture of, from the Israeli standpoint, this mixture of complicated objectives. And are they making any headway on this? And there's a big debate uh, as to whether they are. Half of the structures in, in Gaza have been destroyed, North Gaza. And that's probably three quarters of the infrastructure, housing, industry, medical infrastructure capacity for all of Gaza that's been destroyed. So we're getting into what looks like an, an Aleppo or Mariupol situation populations migrating to the south so that most of people are now in the south, less infrastructure. Of the million that have 1.1, 1.2 million who've entered the south, fleeing the north, they're split between huddling in these UNRWA facilities or these emergency camps that have been popped up with the plastic sheeting where the NGOs and the UN system is. And it's winter and it's cold and it's raining and that sort of thing. The Israeli government now, the IDF is now saying that it wants Khan Yunus residents in the four main neighborhoods of Khan Yunus in the southern south, Gaza. In southern Gaza. To they want them to leave. That's where Sinwar's from, the head of Hamas in Gaza. It's again a clearance strategy as in the north. But again, you get to the question where do these people go? Like, where do people go? Well, and, and, and where does Hamas go? Where does Hamas go? And how do we know where is the civilian and where is the, uh, the, the Hamas the Hamas presence? One of the answers the Israelis are coming up with is this small territory, Al-Mawasi, that's over by the Mediterranean coast. That is taking form, but that too is very controversial because from the standpoint of the, inter of the UN and International Committee of the Red Cross and others... If you begin to say, this is safe, this is a safe zone for these populations. You've got over 2 million people now in the South. And you say, okay, here's a body of land, and maybe you can squeeze a couple hundred thousand people in there. And that's going to be safe so the people that go in there are vetted. What about the status of those people who are outside? Are they now all free game as combatants? Are they regarded as combatants? So it goes against the grain of trying to preserve access and preserve civilian status for an imperiled population and not jump to the assumption that everybody is suspected of being a, a combatant and therefore an open game for armed violence. Again, to get back to the hospital sensitivity issue, just to project forward a little bit, the 36 hospitals, there's still some functioning, but very few. Two-thirds, three-quarters of the 3,500 beds out of commission Many of these hospitals are not going to be put back up on their feet very rapidly. The hope is that as the conditions ease on the humanitarian side, that the UN system and the international NGOs and others, UNRWA and others, will be able to rebuild and restore these hospitals to some functionality. But now there's a distinction being made between the north versus the south, and there are calls by the Israeli government to establish field hospitals in the south to take care of those populations. And that's causing consternation 
and heartburn around, well, wait a second. First of all, can field hospitals reach anything approaching what's needed in terms of scale? And secondly, are you taking money away from getting those hospitals that have just been disabled back up and running? Are we going to leave them to rot while doing a temporary thing? And are we buying into this north-south division where the north will be a wasteland and the south will be a densely populated, very fragile place? The hospitals and medical system and primary health care all figure in this controversy, and both sides are traumatized. As Roger Cohen was saying in his New York Times column, that there's a kind of psychic chasm in which people are historically and presently traumatized to such a degree, they're losing sight of the shared humanity. They're dehumanizing each other, and they're not coming to terms of, wait a second, what are we doing here, and how do we get to where we're going? In a situation like this, where you have wildly opposed interpretations of reality, alternative facts being battered around, and a crisis that's going from a catastrophe to maybe a graduation into a, an apocalyptic kind of situation. It looks like things will only get much worse much quicker. And when you look at it, the civilian capacities are not going to be able to take care. If we have cholera and scabies and starvation and mal severe malnutrition and on and on in terms of infectious disease, diarrheal disease from unpotable water, on and on. It's wet, it's winter, uh, people are stressed and the like. You can imagine a situation where this could like, skyrocket in terms of the public health crisis to become something. And we don't have the institutional capacity, nor do we have any kind of military partners to work in this setting. Like when you've had situations where we've had other situations like this, You've had a more militarized response to getting people, serving people that are in crisis. That's not on the table here at all. As you look at the situation, it's going to get worse, and it's going to get worse kind of fast, and the civilian and UN agencies are finding it more and more difficult to operate because of all the things we talked about. Can't protect their staff. Their communications are broken up. They don't know where their staff are. They've got to adhere to their own security protocols. So they're backing off and less and less able to respond to this worsening crisis. I have so many questions based off of what you just said. But the first thing that really comes to mind is where are Jordan and Egypt to help in this? Jordan and Egypt are allies of the United States. They're allies of Israel. And they're right there and seemingly could help ease this humanitarian crisis. How come they haven't stepped forward? Let's take Egypt first. Through the Rafah gate, the numbers of wounded and foreign nationals that have been permitted out for medical care or just to get out, the foreign nationals, those numbers have risen in recent days. They're still way too small. I mean, it's a fraction of the injured that are getting to care. And the better on the foreign nationals that are getting out. Meaning like United States citizens in Gaza yeah, who have right, been able to right. leave. I mean, from the, and, you know. British citizens, uh, French yeah. citizens. So the Egyptian, the Egyptian view, which I'll grossly oversimplify and I apologize, but the Egyptian view is they're looking at this and they're, they're thinking, okay, the Sinai, they've had battles with, with radical Islamist groups in the Sinai. That they're not entirely confident of the current situation. 
of security. They don't want the, th- the situation to deteriorate. They, they don't want Hamas coming into their countries. They don't want Hamas. They don't want two million Palestinian refugees on their territory because they look historically, they look back to 1948 and beyond, and they know that as those populations are ex- depart their homeland, you're looking at a generation or two generations of those populations remaining in refugee status. And this isn't the only war. And radicalizing. And radicalizing. You know, this is something that they are very reluctant to do. The traffic in trucks, the overland traffic in trucks, prior to October 7th, there were about 500 trucks a day that came into Gaza under the occupation that were permitted to come in, that were cleared by both Israeli and Egyptians that could come in, 500. But most of them were coming through the gate at on the Israeli side at Karen Shalom. That gate is it's insecure outside that gate, and that gate has not been reopened. And we may see more discussion around that as a response. From the Egyptian side, since the Rafah gate was opened, whenever it was, October 21st, something like that, there's been about 1,300 trucks through. Some days they've gotten over 100. If you average it out over that period, it's 30 to 50, but it's getting higher. There have been several days running where it's 90, 100, 120 trucks. But those trucks have to go through a clearance at a site inside Israel. Then they have to come and get clearance from an Egyptian site. And so you can imagine the delays involved and the sensitivities around that. So the Egyptians have worked hard to try to get that expanded, but it's not a solution. 120 trucks a day is not a solution for the volume required, right? The volume required is much higher. The other thing I'd say about the Egyptians is they're playing a role in the negotiations over the hostages, hostage release. In other words, it's a very complicated process of negotiation. It's not very transparent, which is certainly understandable. It's centered in Qatar. We've got U.S. officials there. We've got Israeli senior Mossad officials there negotiating. There's Hamas leadership, political leadership there. There's indirect talks. But a lot of these decisions around the release of hostages are in the hands, ultimately, of military Hamas leadership who are inside. And so the, a lot of the communications are passed by slips of paper that are going through Egyptian hands. And, you know, we've seen these negotiations, these painful negotiations where they think they're close, right, to a deal of a five-day pause and 50 women and children released from the hostages and 50 women and children released from Palestinians in prison. We keep getting closer and closer, and we know there's a, it's controversial on all sides. These, this deal is controversial, and there's opponents in both sides to this, and it's prone to breakdown, and neither side trusts each other, and it's all through indirect talks. My point here is the Egyptians have played an active role in attempting to help that process go forward. And resolving the hostage situation is elementary, obviously, in trying to avoid escalation, avoid further human tragedy, get to another place where there can be other discussions around this. We have to pray that we get some some basis, some formula, right? There's only been just a few released up to now. We're seeing, what are we up to? Three killed Unknown status. We've got about thirty kids. Babies. In, in we have this. babies. We have grandparents. We have. Yeah. So it's we got thirty-five ties in that population, 
we got nine American citizens and one U.S. resident. We have a three-year-old American citizen. Yes. It's painful. It's complicated. It's traumatizing for a whole bunch of different families, communities, countries, and people are eager to see some results. Hopefully, we will see some soon, and it will hopefully begin to alter the climate in which the war is conducted. Because if you have a five-day pause, in wars, you know, having a pause, having a Having a temp, not a ceasefire per se, but having a, a pause that allows for the f- much freer flow of goods in this period can prove to be very important tactic at stabilizing things, proving you can do this without having diversions, proving that you can do this without losing staff. Keep in mind, UNRWA, the UN Refugee Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees that was created decades ago, UNRWA runs most of the schools in Gaza. UNRWA runs most of the primary care facilities. UNRWA has, as of the middle of last week, it had lost 102 of its workers had been killed. I mean, this is horrific. And the images we're seeing out of Gaza are heartbreaking. You know, some might wonder, isn't this what Hamas wanted when it waged this barbaric attack on Israel? Didn't they want to see their infrastructure destroyed this way, their hospitals targeted. They're shooting out of these hospitals, we know, according to Israeli reports. Those are disputable. But your question around, is this deliberate? Yes. And they've said so. There was a remarkable podcast, I think it was November 14th. Michael Barbaro was talking to Hubbard. Hubbard was able to go to Beirut and then to Qatar to talk to the Hamas leadership. And He went there and said, this is suicidal, what you're doing. What's the rationale here? And the leadership was pretty, I mean, they they had dehumanized, as I said, they had, they have complete contempt for international humanitarian law, and they did not see the victims of the slaughter of October 7th as, as legitimate at all or valid, but they clearly had plotted this out as a way of reversing what they saw as the inexorable marginalization of the Palestinian cause, as the Abraham Accords move forward, as reconciliation between Israel and UAE and Morocco and Bahrain, and the possibility of this occurring, you know, uh, in the negotiations with the Saudis. And so this was really meant to blow things up to such a degree that suddenly Palestine becomes center stage and and you have a renewed talk about this. And so there was a judgment made there that was a fairly brutal, fairly brutal judgment around sacrificing the interests of the poor civilian in Gaza who didn't exactly vote for this or see this as a wise move and now are suffering in unimaginable degrees. So I yes, I think you're right that look, this started out with a calculation of atrocities that they knew were going to trigger a profound response from Israel. This was not like the past where you'd have cross-border stuff and you'd have some controlled tit-for-tat and they would, the Israelis would in the past conflicts do, you know, mow the lawn as they would call it, you know, push back their military capacity, but not escalate. Push back Hamas's military capacity. Yes, push back Hamas's military capacity, punish them, but not with the idea of, it was not what was happening along the borders, and this gets back to your earlier point, what was happening along the borders was not seen within Israel as an existential threat, and nor did Israel want to see this escalate, and nor did the Hamas leadership seem to want to have this get out of uncontrolled escalation. 
what we're seeing now is radically different, in which we've got an escalation. We've got two parties that, as we said, you know, the, you, going back to Roger Cohen's column, a psychic chasm between these two sides that has, you know, that leads us into this, this horrible situation. How do you get out of that? Let's remember this is asymmetric. This isn't Israel against the Palestinians. This is Israel against Hamas. And so ordinary Israelis who were maybe taking their security for granted are now worried about this, the existence of their country. Palestinians who are all in Gaza who are fleeing south are worried about their existence more than they ever thought they would a month and change ago. Where does this go from here? How does this, as you said, apocalyptic crisis, how does it remedy itself? That's the fundamental question for which we don't have answers at this point. When does Israel conclude that it's sufficiently achieved its objectives to be willing to negotiate with whom? And what is the governing environment going to look like for those Palestinians who are still there? And how do they eliminate the, the threat of Hamas? And all of those things are just huge uncertainties around what lies ahead and who are willing to be partners in the, un, and under what circumstances for the reconstruction and revitalization of Gaza, under what conditions. And we're distant from that. And we're living in this very uncertain, terrible moment where we are focused on the immediate burgeoning crises and unresolved nature of, of all of these questions that we've just touched on. Steve, I can't thank you enough for your expertise, for your insight, for your very measured analysis of this awfully fraught situation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 